Good afternoon. I am Megan Vokema, a senior at Calvin studying social work and the interfaith intern here on campus. This year, I have had the privilege to work alongside the Kauffman Institute to promote interfaith education, dialogue, and service on Calvin's campus. Today, I would like to welcome you to the January series 2016. Please take a moment to silence your cell phones. While you are doing that, we would like to give a special welcome today to our guests at three of our 48 remote webcast sites, Denver, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, and Kalamazoo, Michigan. We will be gathering questions today through question and answer cards available with our ushers or by email or Twitter. So feel free to think of those questions during the presentation and start sending them in. Our moderator, Rick Truer, will gather the questions and present them at the end if time is allowed. And now, if you will, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you created us to live in community, yet so often we fall short. This afternoon, we seek and ask for a gentle spirit as we explore how to better seek shalom, the flourishing of all people through justice and peace between all individuals and nations of the earth. In a world with great divisions, we pray for peace across boundaries and the will to seek understanding of each other. Thank you for bringing us all here safely so that we can learn and love our neighbors better. We love you, Lord. Amen. And now Cheryl Branson, the provost at Calvin College, will introduce our guest. Good afternoon and welcome to the January series. We are grateful today to John and Mary Lokes and to the Christian Reformed Church in North America for underwriting today's event. A demographic study released in April 2015 by the Pew Research Center predicts that over the next 40 years, Islam will grow faster than any other religion. By 2050, Pew predicts, the number of Muslims will nearly equal the number of Christians around the world. Hindu and Jewish populations also will be larger than they are today. Although understanding religious diversity is a good in and of itself, understanding these global shifts is imperative and requires that all of us come to understand these traditions and learn to use our own faith traditions as tools for fostering interfaith cooperation. Ibo Patel, today's speaker, is a leader who can help us learn to do these things well. In the early 2000s, Ibu launched the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago to promote cooperation across religious lines, train young people in interfaith work, and encourage college students to join with those of different faiths in community service. Ibu was born in Mumbai, India, and raised in Glen Allen, Illinois. He earned a bachelor's degree in sociology at the University of Illinois. After graduating, he taught at an alternative education program for high school dropouts. During this time, he found vision and direction in Dorothy Day's interfaith Catholic Workers Movement that helped channel his social justice passions to a view of the world based in love and mercy rather than anger and violence. Eventually, Ibo went on to earn a PhD in the sociology of religion at Oxford University. In addition to being the founder and president of IFYC, he is a regular contributor to a variety of print and news venues. He served on, on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. He has been recognized by, as a leader by a variety of groups, by the World Economic Forum, by Islamica Magazine as one of 10 young Muslim leaders shaping Islam in America, 
by Harvard's Kennedy School Review as one of five future policy leaders to watch, and many more. Ivo is the author of several books, and these will be available for sale after this lecture and for signing. A central value in Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions is hospitality. Please join me in welcoming Ibo Patel to Calvin's January series. Thank you so much. You know, when I was younger, uh, when I used to be eligible for those awards of uh, young policy leader, et cetera, I am now on the golden age of that. Uh, I used to think to myself, boy, I so honor this January series at Calvin College, and I have such respect for Calvin that one day when I grow up, they will invite me to be in the audience, <laughs> one of these things. So. Th the idea of being uh, on stage following the four Calvin College Beatles who came last week, <laughs> and, uh, whose writings um, have deeply impacted me, by the way, and I once had the opportunity to have a conversation with uh, President Mao about his idea of convicted civility, and it's played a big role in my own notions of what it means to build a transformative pluralism. In any case, I come here um, with deep regard for this institution, for this community, for who you are. Uh, I happen to, to travel in the world of college administrators, and I feel like every time I turn around, there is a college president who claims Calvin as his or her alma mater. At least re very recently, it was Lyle Roloff at Berea that I was with, and Carl Strickwartha at Elizabethtown College. And I think to myself, this place is a launching pad for a critical mass of people who have combined faith in the intellectual life in this country for a very long time. So thank, me, thank you for having me with you this morning. So there is a, a joke about two guys at a cafe in California. One guy says to the other, do you know anything about Eastern religions? And the other guy says, well, yes. I knew some Methodists when I lived in Pennsylvania. I knew you would laugh at that. <laughs> not, not everybody laughs at that, but I appreciate you all. <laughs> so whatever we think of what Eastern religion might be in 2016, it is not just Methodists in Pennsylvania. As the provost reminded us, America has become a very religiously diverse country, a nation that long thought of itself as a Protestant country is now, as Harvard scholar Diane Eck reminds us, perhaps the most religiously diverse nation in human history, certainly amongst the most religiously diverse. There are more Muslims in the United States than there are Episcopalians, for example. There's a great line from the British writer G.K. Chesterton that America is a nation with the soul of a church. Well, if Chesterton was here today, he would have to add to that, that America is a nation with the soul of a church and a synagogue and a gurdwara and a temple and a sangha and a mosque and a secular humanist society. This is who we are. In addition to our religious diversity, we're a highly religiously devout nation. Our rates of belief in God, saying prayers before meals, attendance at church, synagogue, mosque, sangha, gurdwara are significantly higher than rates in our sister countries in Europe, 
country of Canada or Australia. We are a nation in which religion matters. And if we are to believe Robert Putnam, the great social scientist from Harvard, who says that the one thing that we can predict about any society is that it is going to be more diverse in the future than it is today. We are going to, as the provost reminded us, ask the question, what does it mean to live in a highly religiously diverse and devout nation? Now, here is what you will not hear from me. You will not hear from me that diversity is easy. You will not hear from me some elementary school view that diversity is our strength or that we ought to simply celebrate this. The fact is, diversity is very, very hard. I haven't looked at the New York Times this morning, but I bet you that even a cursory glance will reveal, will reveal that a large range of the violence in the world that took place in the last 12 to 18 hours took place between identity groups, which is to say it took place amidst diversity. Diversity is not unlike what the banners say, simply about having a wide palate. It's not just enjoying egg rolls and samosas. <laughs> Diversity is one of the great challenges of our times. As my friend Devorah Lieberman, the president of a college in California, the University of Laverne, likes to say, diversity is not rocket science, it's harder. Diversity for religious communities is particularly challenging. In the late 1970s, a great social theorist, a devout Christian as well, named Peter Berger, changed the world of social theory with two words, modernity pluralizes. Modernity pluralizes. He said that this fact of pluralization, this fact of living amidst people with different identities is what marked the modern age as different from all previous eras. It is very likely the case that previous generations of the people in this room lived in largely homogenous enclaves, certainly psychologically and most likely physically as well. They lived with people who believed the same things that they did and largely looked the same way as well. You went to church on Sunday because everybody else went to church on Sunday. But modernity pluralizes. And the fact of that pluralization changes everything. For religious communities, it changes two things that are particularly challenging. Number one, as Berger reminds us, in a world of diversity, identity moves from fate to choice. When somebody who comes into the neighborhood doesn't go to church on Sunday and goes instead to Jewish prayers on Friday night or Saturday morning, goes to Muslim prayers on Friday afternoon or doesn't go to prayers at all, the first thing that happens in the minds of the people around is the recognition that they have a choice in whether they go to prayers. That, in fact, if somebody else doesn't do something, living into it is not just fate. It's a choice. I imagine that there are many households around the country in the last 50 years in which one generation said to another, but dad, my friend doesn't go to church on Sunday. I'm choosing not to. And the dad said, choice? Church is a choice? Who ever heard that? Modernity 
means identity moves from fate to choice. Well, when there are significant things on the line, the purpose of the human condition, how to live a good life, what happens to us after we die, boy, it is a significant challenge to a religious community when diversity moves in and a set of people realize they have a choice to do things that another set of people, a different generation, might view as actually very, very dangerous. Of course, the corollary to identity moving from faith to choice to that person in the household saying, I'm choosing not to go to church this Sunday, my friend, after all, doesn't go, is that religious communities no longer have a taken-for-granted status. People no longer simply show up in the pews every Sunday morning. Religions, as Berger said, have become voluntary communities. This is a significant challenge to a traditional religious community, a significant challenge to my own Ismaili Muslim community that for generations, eras, centuries, could simply assume that people came. It was their fate. It was their destiny. It was, was, it was what was meant to be that the Jamath Khanas, the prayer halls were filled, the Thusbis were in the pockets of the children. The Shia Muslim mantra was on their lips, the ones that their mothers taught them and their grandmothers taught their mothers and their great-grandmothers taught those great-grandmothers. Not anymore. Diversity makes it challenging for an identity community. What does it mean when identity moves from fate to choice? What does it mean when the church, the mosque, the sangha, the gurdwara, the jamatkana becomes a voluntary community instead of one where people just roll downhill into? So I asked the tech people to leave the house lights on for this moment so that I could look at you and guess what was on your minds. And my guess is that it is something along the lines of, boy, this cat has dug a deep hole for himself. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the guy who leads the Interfaith Youth Corps is gonna show up and tell us how hard a thing diversity is? Well, let's see how he climbs out of this one. Well, I'm gonna try. And I'm gonna use one of the most beautiful toolkits in the world the toolkit of theology. What do I mean by theology? I mean not simply doctrine, although it is a part of it, not simply the exegesis of central texts, also that is a bit, although that is also a big part of it. I mean a coherent weaving together of salient themes across the key sources of a religious tradition, important historical moments, archetypal figures, poems, philosophy, architecture, and texts, and doctrine into a coherent narrative of a deep logic of that tradition. And what I want to suggest to you today is that the development of a theology of interfaith cooperation is a requirement for shalom, in the world, peace and wholeness in the world, and the continuity 
of our religious identity communities. This is to say, the ability to articulate from in Islam, the Quran, and the Hadith, the Umayyads, and the Abbasids, Rumi, and Attar, Malala Yousafzai, and Muhammad Yunus, the great figures, the deep poetry, the central texts of the Muslim tradition that make of difference and diversity something holy. As hard as it is, it is holy, and we must engage it positively. And as challenging as it is sometimes to engage with people who are different from us, who allow for choice to enter into things that are actually really important that we want to pass down to our kids, the ability to develop relationships with those people is sacred. A theology of interfaith cooperation weaves together dominant themes from the key sources of religious traditions in a manner that views diversity as holy and relationship as sacred while recognizing the challenge and difficulty in all of these things. I want to offer for you the beginnings of a Muslim theology of interfaith cooperation to highlight some of the central stories that I personally resonate with as a Muslim that do this, highlight the holiness of diversity and build the sacredness in relationship. I then want to move into a concrete story of something that happened to a very close Christian friend of mine something that dramatizes the challenge of diversity and that highlights really the requirement of building a theology of interfaith cooperation in our day and age. I want to move from there into fraught territory, which is to say I want to tell a Christian story, one that I love, that I think highlights a part of many of your theologies of interfaith cooperation. And I want to end on a note of optimism, a note that says we're not just moving into this world, we're building it, and we're building it together. First, Islam. First, the holiness of diversity. And I will begin at the beginning with the creation of humankind, which we Muslims believe from Surah 2 of the Holy Quran begins when God picks up a lump of clay and gives it his breath, thereby creating Adam, the first human being, the representative in the Quran of all humankind, our common ancestor. God says to Adam, I make you my abd and Halifa, my servant and representative upon the earth. Look at creation. You are its steward. God then invites the angels forth, says to the angels, I want you to honor Adam, the first human being, the one I have chosen to be the steward of creation. The angels look at God and say, why would we honor a creature who will only fiddle and destroy? God looks at the angels and says, I know what you do not know. God vouches for us. 
God vouches for our common ancestor, Adam, in the face of the angel's denial. Then God sets up a contest between Adam and the angels. He says to the angels, I want you to tell me the names of creation. The angels say, oh God, we don't have that knowledge. The only knowledge we have is to sing the glories of your name. God turns to Adam, gives him the same command. Tell me the names of creation. Adam finds those names pouring from his lips. Trees and oceans and rivers names the animals. God has given Adam the knowledge of the names of creation. I remember being in my early 20s at Oxford University where I was a graduate student in the early days of my coming back to Islam, reading the Quran, coming upon this verse, and there being a single word in this verse that I couldn't get over. The word names, it's not singular. It's not name. God does not say to Adam and the angels, tell me the name of creation. Creation isn't singular. It's not the same thing repeated over and over again. Creation is not a monoculture. Creation is diverse. It is manifold. The angels did not have the knowledge, the ability to tell God the names of creation, and Adam did. What unique knowledge, what special gift does Adam have that the angels do not have, what justifies him being the steward of creation, God's Abd and Halifa, his servant and representative? It's the ability to name diversity, the ability to flow with the multitude. God makes creation diverse gives clay his breath, creates us, makes us the steward of that diversity. When the angels deny our glory, our stewardship, God vouches for us. I know what you do not know. That's what creation is. Made by God is diverse. That's who we are, who we were meant to be. Stewards of this diversity. In the Quran, in the central text of my tradition, in the creation story, diversity is holy. Another beginning in Islam that speaks to the sacredness of relationships between people who are different. Adam is the first prophet in Islam, followed by Noah and Moses, Abraham and Jesus, and finally, Muhammad. How does Muhammad become a prophet? Well, he is a merchant in the city of Mecca, and every year he would spend a month in a cave on Mount Hira, the month of Ramadan, where he would pray and fast and give alms to the poor. And on one of the odd nights of the last 10 days of the month of Ramadan in the year 610, Muhammad, this illiterate merchant from Mecca felt a force grip him and say the word ikra, recite. And Muhammad thinks that this is a jinn, a demon figure in the Arabian desert. And he says to this jinn, I am not a reciter. 
Second time, he feels gripped. Ikra, the voice says again, louder. Again, Muhammad says, I am not a reciter. He's not a poet. He's illiterate. He's telling this jinn to leave him alone. A third time, and this time, Muhammad feels like the life is being squeezed out of him. This being is so strong. Ikra, it says. And on this third time, this merchant from Mecca, this illiterate man, finds what becomes the first verse of the Quran pouring from his lips. Recite in the name of your Lord who created, created humankind from a clot. There are traditions that say that at this moment, Muhammad is petrified. He even considers hurling himself off of this mountain. He thinks he's been possessed by a jinn. He goes back to the person he loves and respects most in the world, his wife. Whenever people ask me about the status of women in Islam, I point to Khatija, the prophet Muhammad's wife, and I say, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for her, Muhammad crawls under the blanket, shivering with cold and fear, this earth-shattering experience. He tells his wife what happened, says he's afraid, he's been possessed. Khatija says to him, I don't know what has happened to you for sure, but I know this, that God would never allow a man as righteous as you to be possessed. I know who will tell us what happened. My uncle Waraka is learned in the scripture. I will bring you to him. Khatija and Muhammad see Waraka in the marketplace in Mecca some days later. Khatija brings her husband forth, explains the story to Waraka. He tightens his robe around him, looks into Muhammad's eyes, kisses him on the forehead, looks at Khatija and says, verily, the prophet of your people has arrived. Who is Waraka? What does it mean to be learned in the scriptures in the western half of the Arabian Peninsula in the year 610? Waraka is a Christian, a Christian monk. It is a Christian monk who first recognizes the prophethood of Muhammad. The sources suggest the Waraka never converts. Muhammad never asks him to. They simply exist in respectful, sacred relationship amidst their differences. Story three. Again, from the early days of Islam, the Prophet's mission from the year 610 to 622 was very difficult. He was preaching two things, monotheism and mercy. There is one God and he requires of us to be merciful to one another. No matter what your tribe is, no matter what your clan is, no matter what your family is, all of these divisions in Arabian society in which there would be frequent bloodshed, Muhammad sought to end that. We belong to the one God, we worship him, we are merciful to each other. That is the key message of Muhammad's preaching. There were people in Mecca who did not like that. Tribes who saw this as challenging their authority, their God, their way of dealing with clan, tribal, ethnic, family conflict. They started to send people after Muhammad. It got physical at points. Muhammad was concerned that he would be killed 
that Islam, which means submission to the will of the one God, would die out if he was killed. So he sends a small contingent of his companions, led by his family member, Jaffer, to the kingdom of Abyssinia, present-day Ethiopia. He believed they would be safe there. Why? Because Abyssinia was ruled by a man named the Negus. What was special about the Negus? The Negus had converted to Christianity. Muhammad believed that the Negus would recognize the resonances between the Christian faith and this emerging Muslim faith and protect this fledgling Muslim community. These Muslims arrive in Abyssinia. The Negus hears word of their coming, calls them to his court, sits on his resplendent throne, gathers his bishops, asks the Muslims who they are and what they are doing here. The Muslims open early copy of the Quran and they begin to recite the verses from the Quran on their veneration and love for the Virgin Mary. The Negus is so moved by this recitation that he begins to cry and soon his whole court is weeping. The sources say that they weep so profusely that their beards are soaked in their salty tears. The Negus stands up and declares that the Muslims will be safe in his kingdom as long as he is king. He draws with his staff a line in the sand, says the difference between your religion and mine is no thicker than this line. The sacredness of relationship. I could go on and on and on. We hear lots of things about Islam these days in the evening news. I tell you, these are the stories that I grew up with. These are the stories that my parents taught me about what it means to be Muslim in the world. These are the stories that I teach my kids. These are the stories that are affirmed to them in their Muslim religious education. This is the Islamic theology of interfaith cooperation. This is something that we Muslims know and love, many of us seek to live by. I'm proud to share it with you. I'm proud that some of you may become more familiar with it as well. Why are such theologies so important? Why is it so critical in a country that is diverse and devout to develop out of our own traditions a theology that says that diversity is holy and relationship is sacred? None of it is easy, but we do what's important. We do what is holy, we do what is sacred. Let me tell you the story of my friend, April Kunzi Mendez, a co-founder of Interfaith Youth Corps with me, evangelical Christian who grows up in Minnesota. Her Christian identity is the heart of her life. She's not a Wednesday evening Bible study person and a Sunday morning church person. She's there every day of the week, leading every activity that there is to lead. She goes on mission trips to Kenya and Russia. She learns different languages so that she can go on mission trips to different countries. It is the heart of who she is. She goes to Carleton College in the 1990s. She continues to live her Christian life, becomes the head of her Christian group at Carleton. This is the mid-late 1990s. 
She is on a listserv of the religious leaders across the state of Minnesota. She gets an email one day that says, from the imam of a mosque in the Twin Cities, that his mosque is burned down. The authorities suspect arson. He is reaching out to the leaders of other religious communities to come to a candlelight vigil. Will they come and simply be a witness, a sacred witness to a terrible happening, not just to his community, but to the civil community? April immediately shoots back an email, yes, we will be there. She shares this with her group the following week, her Christian group. She hears some shifting in the chairs. She continues, the van will be at the college gates at five. They'll make it to the Twin Cities in 90 minutes or so. They'll be there for the seven o'clock vigil. Now there's a, more than a little shifting. Now there's outright shuffling and there's people starting to whisper to each other. April, being a little nervous, adjourns the meeting and says that she'll remind people of the details in an email. A couple of the members of the group come up to her. They are angry. They have their Bibles open. They look at April and say, we think that you are leading us into devil worship. We think that this is not a time to be supportive of the wrong religion. This is a time to remind people of the right religion. April is taken aback. There's chapter and verse quoted by these folks. April, for however many thousands of times she has been to church, for however many hundreds of times she has read the Bible over, for however many mission trips she has been on and Bible camps she has attended, has no response. She is not able to articulate a Christian reason for attending a candlelight vigil on the grounds of a different religious community that has been burned down. The following week, nobody goes with her from that group. The following week, April joins with a group of people from Carleton College who are not part of the Christian group, who don't call themselves Christian. They go to that candlelight vigil. The week after, there is a vote in the group. They depose her. They call her unchristian, unfit for leadership. April is having a crisis of faith. The people who went in that van to that mosque the label that others had for them was nice. What they did was nice. The people who prayed for that community that what had happened was actually a sign of God, it's burning, it's arson. The people who said this is an opportunity, they were called Christian. In April, for as much as she loved her religion, couldn't, for several years after that, call herself Christian. It was only when she started to read Christian theologians that told a story of Jesus and the Bible that connected the Christian faith to the holiness of diversity and the sacredness of relationship that she began to claim 
the Christian tradition again. Every instinct in her body said, when the house of worship of a different religion is burned down in an act of hatred, you stand up in reverence, in solidarity, in friendship. She wanted to call those instincts Christian and not just nice. But she needed a theology of interfaith cooperation to do that. In our world today, we encounter this all the time. My son's friends at their school are Jewish and Hindu and Christian Reform and Catholic and Baptist and atheist. I want them to know that if any one of them is being teased for any reason, but especially their religious identity, it is their Muslim obligation to stand up in solidarity. They have to have a theology of interfaith cooperation if they're going to say, this is not just a nice thing to do. It is a Muslim thing to do. What were the elements of April's theology of interfaith cooperation? Interestingly, it was a creative exegesis of the Good Samaritan story that was the keystone in April's bridge from her Christian faith to solidarity with other religions. The Good Samaritan story, as the vast majority of you know much better than me, begins with the lawyer saying to Jesus, how do I attain eternal life? My wife is a lawyer. That part makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Jesus says, you know the answer to that question. Love your God and love your neighbor. The lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, as is his way, tells a story. It's a story that's very familiar to this audience because as it is so beautiful and moving, I will tell a short version of it. A man is left for dead at the side of the road, Jericho to Jerusalem. Two people pass him by, a priest and a Levite. Somebody stops, gets down off of his donkey, bathes the man's wounds in oil and in wine, puts him on the donkey, brings him to an inn, stays with him through the night, nurses him back to a semblance of health, gives the innkeeper two days' wages and says, if this man is not healthy in two days, I will come back and give you more so that you can keep him and continue to heal him. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. I've heard that story dozens of times, and I'm not even Christian. And the straightforward interpretation of that story is Samaritans were not like Jesus and the Jews who followed him. Samaritans were a different tribe. They were an other. And Jesus is telling in this parable a story of the importance of building a positive relationship with the other, that sometimes you have to follow the superior ethics of the other, other, even when people in your own tribe, even when leaders of your own tribe, the priest and the Levite in this case, pass the man laying by the side of the road by. But April discovered a deeper layer to the Good Samaritan story. Who actually were Samaritans? What does it mean to be of a different tribe? Well, she pointed me to a chapter in the Bible, chapter called The Woman at the Well. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And what does he do? Well, in part, he ministers to her by way of something of what might be called a doctrinal argument. Points out that Samaritans pray at a different temple than Jews do. Points out that they worship a God that they do not know, while Jesus and his followers worship a God that they do know. Who were the Samaritans? They were not a random different other. The Samaritans were the religious other. Samaritans were people of a different religion. They prayed to a different temple. They believed in a false god by lights of Jesus and his Jewish followers. Jesus is not shy about this in the woman at the well story. What does that mean for the story of the Good Samaritan? What does it mean when people with the right doctrine do the wrong thing and pass the man laying at the side of the road by? What does it mean when somebody of the wrong doctrine does the right thing, stops, helps, goes out of his way, endangers himself? Sometimes the person with the wrong doctrine is illuminating the holiness of diversity. Sometimes the person of the wrong doctrine is exhibiting superior ethics. Sometimes the person with the wrong doctrine is somebody you have to build a sacred relationship with. How does the story end? Go and do likewise. How did the story begin? How do I attain eternal life? How is this not a theological story? We attain eternal life by way of this story, by occasionally following the better behavior of the person with the wrong doctrine. We are awake to their holiness, to their sacredness, to their being made in the image of God, to them carrying out the work of mercy sometimes in ways that we wish we had ourselves. It's that interpretation of that story, the ability to connect it to her experience when she was a college student that allows April to proudly proclaim again that she is a Christian with a theology of interfaith cooperation that gives pride in her Christian identity that illuminates the holiness of diversity, that seeks to build sacred relationship with people of different, even sometimes wrong doctrine. I think in the 20th century, the greatest figures were people who exhibited a theology of interfaith cooperation. Often a Christian theology of interfaith cooperation. In the hell of Hitler's death camps, as the Nazis were building their darkness across Germany and Europe, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets on German radio 
and says, those who did not stand up for the Jews do not deserve to sing Gregorian chants. If you cannot exhibit sacred relationship with those who suffer, according to Bonhoeffer's notion of the cost of discipleship, you don't deserve the privilege of Christian worship. One of the last acts of the Nazi regime was ordering the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So powerful and dangerous was a Christian theology of interfaith cooperation to the Nazis that they made sure he was dead. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1959, when he returns from India and climbs back up in the pulpit of his church in Montgomery, Alabama, he speaks about the most Christ-like person in the 20th century being not a Christian, being a Hindu from India, Mahatma Gandhi. He speaks about his time in India opening him up to these different religions, to as you at Calvin College might say, I love this line from your mission, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, we take as a gift from Jesus. King viewed what he learned about Islam in Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism from his time in India as that joy, as part of that purity, as part of that loveliness. The second to last line of his Palm Sunday sermon, 1959, Montgomery, Alabama. Oh God, our gracious heavenly Father, we call you this name. We know some call you Allah. We know some call you Brahma. We know some call you Elohim. We know some call you the unmoved mover. King is illuminating the holiness of diversity for his congregation in that little provincial city in the American South in the middle of the 20th century. But that is his second to last line, his last line. Who will come to the front of the church and take as his savior today, Jesus. I love the juxtaposition of those two. Did King's admiration for other religions make him any less of a Christian? Did it make him any less of a follower of Jesus? King once said, many people want to make of me many things, but in the deep recesses of my heart, I'm a Christian minister. My daddy was a Christian minister. My granddaddy was a Christian minister. My great-granddaddy was a Christian minister. The highest calling I have, higher than race or nation or creed, is my calling to serve the Son of the living God as I see him in Jesus Christ. King was someone who learned from Gandhi, who marched with the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who nominated a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, for the Nobel Peace Prize. At the end of the day, he was a Christian. Someone who, after speaking of Gandhi as the most Christ-like person of the 20th century, does an altar call. I don't think developing admiration, friendship, recognizing holiness in other religions makes anyone less of what they are. I think it is a requirement for wholeness.
for fullness, for stewardship, for shalom. I think it makes us more of what we are. I'll end with the words of the great Chicago poet, Gwendolyn Brooks. We are each other's business. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Jazakallah, may God give you goodness. Thank you. have some time for questions and so if you do have a question that's written out on a card and would like to have that brought up to the stage just hold it up and the ushers will bring those forward otherwise you can use the hashtag January series on Twitter or email to jseries at calvin.edu. Um, I'm going to start with a question that uh, was sent in from a student by email. Um, you uh, sort of alluded to the fact that um, this discussion is in, on the evening news at night, and I wondered if you have any advice on how to encourage interfaith dialogue in this currently polarized political atmosphere. So uh, thank you for that question. Thank you for being a terrific audience. I appreciate, um, I just appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Um, so I would say uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things on encouraging interfaith dialogue right now. One is, this whole talk that I just gave, <laughs> I, really, I really believe that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, when people decide that diversity is holy and relationship is sacred because of their own religion, it's not, it's not a choice anymore, it's a command, right? So the development of that, and then when, when people believe something is a religious command, I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter how hard it is. You do it. You're required to do it. You're required, even though some folks might think you're crazy, even though people think you're crossing lines you shouldn't cross, this development of this recognition, this is not a new thing, right? We are recovering. We are making salient things that already exist. I mean, April had heard the Good Samaritan story however many hundreds of times, but... Nobody had told her until she was in her mid-20s that the Samaritans were a different religious tribe. Nobody had offered her that interfaith interpretation. That was there from the beginning, right? So development of that theology, I think, is really important. I think number two is um, learn things that you admire about other religions. I mean, if honestly... If, if, you were to, if, 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 I, if you had an index card and I told you right on the front three bad things about Islam and right in the back three good things, three things that you admire, how fast would you be able to fill out the front of the card versus the back? That's not about you or anybody else. It's about the evening news, right? That's about how good Muslim extremists are in getting their terrible deeds, first of all, doing their terrible deeds, Secondly, getting that story told. 
But if we only know the bad things about a tradition that is 1,400 years old, that is in over 100 countries, that has 1.6 billion followers, that, that is not a useful way of building a religiously diverse society. So step two is learning things that you admire about other religions. Step three, I see my friends Katie Gordon and Doug Kinchy here in the audience, fifth row up, left side, <laughs> front row for the concert. Uh, I mean, so they're a, they, you, the, I mean, Grand Rapids is a, a, a national center. West Michigan is a national center. Through the Kauffman Institute, through your variety of interfaith programs, the fact that the Aspen Institute comes here to write a report on interfaith and in the country, they choose West Michigan as a region that it, it, this is flowering in. Get involved in interfaith activities. And a lot of what they do is service projects, right? People who orient around religion differently coming together to build a house with Habitat for Humanity and to ask the question, what from your tradition inspires you to serve? Theology of interfaith cooperation, appreciative knowledge of other traditions, becoming involved in concrete projects exactly of the type that uh, Western Michigan Grand Rapids already has. All right, thank you. Uh, this question came in on Twitter. Um, the question is, does a Christian theology of cooperation exclude the Christian belief in the Great Commission? Not at all. Hey, what a great question. So, uh, so um, I have a couple of answers to this. Number one, uh, one of the people that I've learned the most from uh, is a, a young pastor named Nick Price. He was a college student when I was first starting Interfaith Youth Corps, and just getting involved in interfaith work was an evangelical Christian, was uh, head of his intervarsity Christian group at the University of Illinois, and he once said to me something so beautiful. He said, you know, in Christianity, there are actually multiple narratives and multiple logics. There is the Great Commission and there is the Great Cooperation. And there are times when it is appropriate to evangelize, and there are times when it is appropriate to cooperate. And we should, be, we should recognize the difference between those times. Islam is an evangelical tradition. Islam grows also through proselytization. And he helped me categorize the different impulses within Islam. There are times when it is appropriate for Muslims to evangelize, and there are times when it is appropriate to cooperate. I think the most important thing here is to not, to not mix up the two, which is to say, that when World Vision, and I know this because I'm friends with the president of World Vision, runs a hospital in Pakistan, it is living out the Christian call to serve others. It is not using that hospital as a method of, of conversion the way, we, the way we understand conversion of bringing people into Christianity. As my friend Bob Roberts, a pastor in Texas, likes to say, there are times when I, when I serve because I am converted. There are times when I serve by trying to convert others, but those two times are separate. So the Great Commission is a big part of, of significant interpretations of Christianity. I have deep respect for that. I think the Great Cooperation is a big part of Christianity. This is not dissimilar from Islam. Discerning how we express our Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or humanist selves at any particular time, I think that, that that is part of the art of living. Great, thank you. 
another question, email from a student. Um, has, how has understanding others' beliefs help you strengthen and or clarify your own? Uh, one, another great question. So, you know, I, uh, as I said, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Muslim household of the Ismaili interpretation of Islam. And, and so, you know, uh, Arabic prayer and thusbees, prayer be Muslim prayer beads were, they were in the mix of my household. It wasn't, uh, we weren't, uh, my, my parents were not uh, highly devout, but it was in the air. But I come back to Islam as a young adult. I basically give up religion for eight or 10 years. I, I, don't, think any, I, I, don't, I don't think anything oppositional about it. I just don't really think about it at all. Um, I'm ambivalent. And uh, it's, it was finding Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement. It was reading King and Bonhoeffer and Blake. Uh, it was reading Abraham Joshua Heschel and Thich Nhat Hanh. It was trying to be a Buddhist. Um, I looked at all of these other religious archetypes and doctrines and paths, and I had such admiration for them, such love for them. And then one day somebody drops on me Rumi, and I'm reading in Rumi, you know, start a huge foolish project like Noah, right? These, these, these beautiful lines. And then somebody says to me, you know he's Muslim, right? And I'm like, really? I'm just like confessing my ignorance to you when I was 20, 21 or 22. And I had this like moment where I realized that the things that I admired in other religions, the mercy, the poetry, the beauty, they existed in mine. And the reason that I hadn't really explored that is frankly an adolescent discrimination against the familiar. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying, you know, whatever my parents taught me couldn't be cool, right? <laughs> um, but then, you know, I, go to, I went to South Africa uh, and I met these Muslims, Farid Asak, Ibrahim Rasul, Ibrahim Musa, who were central players in the movement against apartheid. And I'm like, I, I thought only Christians did that, you know? I thought only, you know, Hindus had... Uh, a theology of nonviolence as social reform that liberated a country. And Farid Esak is like, no, man. We were right there with Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Ask them, you know? And I'm like, there are heroes in my religion, right? There's this great beauty in my religion. There's this line in the Quran, which brings tears to my eyes every time I, I say it, where God says to the Prophet Muhammad, we sent you to be nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. And I just... It was other religions that opened me to the importance of these things, to that layer, that, that infinity of mercy, those layers of beauty. And when I found it in my own, I just, you know, I embraced it. You know, um, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a powerful thing in a coming of age story when you find the words of the prayers your mother taught you coming into your mind in your attempt at Buddhist meditation. <laughs> and you just, you're like, this, maybe this is just who I am. You know, maybe I was just meant to be a Muslim. And, um, and I will try to be that as best I can. But it was my encounters with other traditions um, 
the things that I admired about them that opened my eyes to those dimensions in Islam. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today. He will be out in the lobby if you'd like to buy one of his books or meet with him. Let's thank him for being with us today. Thank you.